Although, I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Welcome to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. And as you can tell, this is a special event. What's the deal with that music? But don't worry, we're going to get to it in a second. Because joining me today is Lisa Gullickson, wife dork. Hey, Lisa, how's it going? Weird. 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 It is going weird. It's weird out there, right? Yeah. Uh, pandemic. Yeah. Just a touch. Just a we touch. We just got a touch of the pandemic. Just a touch we don't of the have pandemic. The t- I should reword that. We we don't have it. That we know of. That we know of. We can't test. We could be Idris Elbaing it. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. Symptomless. We don't know. Uh, but Lisa and I are living the life of social distancing, uh, spending all our time indoors. As much as we can. And um, yeah, it's been a heck of a thing, but I don't want to dwell on the depressing aspects of it. Because it- there are exciting things afoot. Creepy things. Yeah, creepy things. Cool things. Uh, we are super excited to have Liz and Jimmy Reed, the art duo known as Cuddles and Rage, joining us on the podcast today, talking about their new book, Bites of Terror. Ten, what is it? Frightfully. Frightfully? Delicious Tales. Delicious Tales. Okay, full disclosure, you may already know this if you're a longtime listener, but Liz and Jimmy are big friends uh, of us. We love them. We love them. And it's it's wild to me that we know people as cool as Cuddles and Rage, right? I Like, how long have we known them? It's been uh, like five years. It's got to be longer than that. It's probably longer than that. I remember the first time I met them was at a small press expo out in Bethesda, Maryland. We had been communicating online and they had said like, oh, if you're coming to SPX, you got to make sure you come and buy the table. And I went by the table and they were like, crazy nice to me? Well, they they knew you from the onlines. They knew the mouth dork. Yeah, but like at that point, I was just like some Twitter dope. I, you know, I, I, I hadn't really- A charming Twitter dope? You know what? It maybe was 10 years ago because had I even launched the In the Mouth of Dorkness blog by that point? I don't Yes, because if your um, Twitter handle was Mouth Dork. Oh, yes, time. you're right. You're right, right, right. So early days of In the Mouth of Darkness. Yeah. Uh, blog spot days. But anyway, <laughs> they were like crazy nice to me. And I remember thinking that these people are too darn nice. They can't possibly mean it. But then every time I kept encountering them, they got nicer and nicer. And then they joined up with our film club at uh, Alamo Draft House in Ashburn. And we became like, you know, fast friends. But the way that they keep it so nice all the time is that they get their angst out in their comics. And they write <laughs> super dark Food-related ha-has that yeah. are brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Bites of Terror, it actually comes out next Tuesday. Uh, you can order it from your local bookstores or the onlines. I mean, you're going to have to do it online because if 
your neck of the woods is anything like our neck of the woods right now. A lot of shops are doing just curbside deliveries of books. Which I think is good because you should be supporting your local comic book stores if you can. Absolutely. Shout out to Big Planet Comics. They are doing mail away packages of all your subscriptions and I am incredibly thankful to them. You know what that means? Unboxing. Unboxing. And that's always fun. Yeah. So, you know, find your favorite dealer and place an order for Bites of Terror. It comes out Tuesday, like we said. We read it. We love it. We each have different favorite stories from it. I think that you can learn a lot about a person from which of these (laughs) 10 frightful, delicious tales is your fave. Yeah, it's. I I definitely agree uh, with that statement. Uh, Now, the way we're doing this interview this week is, as you heard, there are two theme songs at the start of this episode. That second theme song, after the record scratch that I cleverly put into there. You're an amazing editor. I'm such a good editor. That belongs to Comic Book Couples Counseling, which is our other podcast that we do where we talk about our favorite superheroes, our favorite non-superheroes, our comic book couples that we love and adore, and then we pair a relationship book with that couple to help them through their dark times. That's right. That's right. And so the second half of this interview is going to drop with the book next Tuesday over at Comic Book Couples Counseling. You can search it on iTunes by typing in Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. Yeah. It's nice to share the love. I know that I I went on their website, cuddlesandrage.com. You should visit it. But I, like it breaks my heart to see all of these events that they've planned to promote their book getting postponed and canceled. And um, so I'm so grateful that we have this platform to share their amazing art. And um, yeah, and you should share these apps and you should buy these books and you should tweet about them because... Um, you know, artists are coming out of everywhere and they deserve to be celebrated. And one thing we should mention also on top of that is going into this interview, it was recorded like three weeks ago. So we won't be talking about the pandemic in any way. Thank God. I need some distraction. Uh, And also uh, their poor little dog, Biscotti, was having some digestive issues. Had like some- Yeah, tum-tum problems. some negative reactions to some food. And there's some barking. There's some barking. There's some barking and there's- uh, Liz and Jimmy going out and coming back in, but Brad is editing it. I'm sure it sounds fantabulous, but um, if there, if that is distracting, just prepare yourself. I'm always happy. Like when I'm listening to a podcast, if I'm listening to Natch Butte and I hear Chooch barking away, I love it. You're barely going to hear the dog, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. You're an amazing. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine, guys. So uh, we've been rambling on long enough. Let's jump into this conversation and have a good time. Thanks again, Liz and Jimmy. Yay, Cuddles and Rage. Yay. Hey, and as promised, we are back with Liz and Jimmy Reed, a.k.a. Cuddles and Rage, authors of the new book, Bites of Terror, 10 Frightfully Delicious Tales, published by Quirk Books. You know this already because I've already talked about this in the intro, but now I'm introing it to our <laughs> guests so that they also know what they're going to talk about. Hey, Liz. Hey, Jimmy. Hello. Oh. Guests, so nice. We introduced them twice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yes, we have read the book. We've loved the book. 
we have our favorites. Uh, uh, oh, make... no, don't, don't, don't. Are you going to spoil our favorite uh, cartoons? Uh, should I not? I mean, so... Make-A-Wish is my favorite. Make-A-Wish is Lisa's oh! favorite. Okay. Oh! These are things that we need to know because we're going into like award season, and so we gotta submit some stories here. So. Well, I mean, deviled eggs my favorite, but that's yeah. because there's oh, a bagel named Brad in it. <laughs> yeah. So, so where, what was the genesis of Bites of Terror? Because being Cuddles and Rage enthusiasts, we've seen the DNA of Bites of Terror in Doctor Taquito, in your short videos like Bloody Mary and Deadly Cocktail, but when did those kind of dark food-related stories begin for Bites of Terror? Um, well, even before Bites of Terror, when we started Cuddles and Rage, our, our stories were were pretty dark, <laughs> um, sometimes uncomfortable to describe. <laughs> we did, We I think your audience would appreciate it. Like, we did have a, a peanut with a gag ball oh, yeah. at times, which does not... This does not match our flavor now. Like we went, we went extreme when we started. In early days of Cuddles and Rage, we were kind of figuring out our voice, and um, as we displayed our work at shows, we we actually ended up in the kid lit area, which is what people probably know us as in, in bookstores from our sweet series books. Um, but our our heart is always in the the dark, twisted humor. So after publishing two picture books. We wanted to go back to doing something dark and twisted um, and, and specifically something in the horror realm because horror is really what Jimmy and I um, share. We actually bonded over horror on our first date. So uh, one day when I was walking our dog, um, I was just thinking about Tales from the Crypt, which is a show that I grew up on and loved immensely. And I was like, well, what if you did that with food? And so I, I ran inside and told Jimmy and his words was like, write a proposal. And so um, I kind of sat down outside and, and came up with some germs of ideas and fed that to Jimmy. And then he came back with some ideas and we just ended up loving this concept so much that um, we had this editor who has been asking us to do kind of more um, adult stories and adult in the sense that it's more like all ages versus like, um, kid stories where you're limited to like the zero to eight age range, which always words me out that zero is an age range. <laughs> um, so this just felt like the perfect story, um, to pitch to our editor at Quirk. Um, especially because I, I felt, um, the timing was just right. Cause I think at San Diego comic-con, um, I think Shudder had just announced that they were going to bring back Creepshow. And so I was like, okay, well, horror anthology, that if you don't, you know, submit this proposal now, you're going to pass the boat on this. So it ended up just being perfect timing, the right idea at the right time. What does it mean for you guys to, you know, to, re to bring the Cuddles and Rage persona uh, to book form after having had the success with uh, Sweet Competition and Sweet Success in the kids' realm? Like, what is that uh, satisfaction like? It's been great to get back to that. Um, I mean, we love our kids' books, too. We love telling all kinds of stories. But uh, it was especially fun to write these ten little tales because we got to write a whole lot uh, and uh, throw a bunch of ideas back and forth. Um, I, I liked that it kind of fed out of the way we make comics where we're telling little simple stories and being able to 
kind of generate a number of tales that we could twist together to kind of get a bunch of stories out of our system at once. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and if you go through the history of our comics, which, you know, we've kind of, as we've grown as storytellers, we've kind of cleaned up some of our comics to just try and mostly have ones that are on brand on our website. But if you dig deep into the internet, (laughs) then you might see that some of the stories that you find in Bites of Terror um, really stemmed from some comics that we wrote back in like 2010 that, that were just one word jokes that we've grown into full on beginning, middle and end stories. And there was never any um, concern about uh, how you differentiate um, the sweet success world uh, from the bites of terror world. Yeah. This is something we've sort of been working through ever since we started making content and showing it at comic conventions, because the, the characters we make, the colors we use, they're all bright and who doesn't love a donut. Um, (laughs) but when you start looking at what the donut's up to or what he's going through, um, kind of, I guess it's more emotional terror in a lot of ways, the stuff we work on. Um, you know, it, we want to make sure that we're designating that for people who are looking at things on our table. So we've always had sort of sections where when someone comes up to talk to us, if it's a younger person, we kind of point them toward things that are most appropriate for where they're at. Yeah, we're like, check out this row. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we have anything that's like too over the top. But And we talk to the parents always if there's a kid who's at the table and explain to them what we do. We show them certain things to help them make the decision if it's appropriate for their child. Because um, I know I grew up watching horror films with my parents, and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, of different access that kids have to that. And I think the, the parents really are the gatekeeper there. So we've done our best to try to make sure that they're aware of what we do um, and not just, like, have a kid pick up a book that has something being slaughtered in it. <laughs> yeah, and I think the best example there is with a self-published book that we created called Santa Conda, <laughs> which, you know, ultimately it's not really a scary book. But, you know, spoiler, Santa Conda eats children. <laughs> and for, for some children, um, you know, that's a really scary concept because what we learned uh, going through the kidlet industry is that oftentimes um, children see themselves as the main character. And so if you have like a really, um, you know, imaginative child who puts themselves in that position, that could, that could be very, very scary. Uh, so we don't want to be the ones making that decision for the parents. Um, we, we'd rather be overly sensitive than to have somebody shocked, uh, because especially going through comic conventions, um, you know, there is a lot of uh, indie comic conventions specifically. There is a lot of work that does look kid friendly and then you open it. And <laughs> even I, as an adult woman, will start blushing and being like, oh, I didn't know I was getting into this. <laughs> so... All of that being said, though, like I can see an 11 year, 11 and a half year old make cuddles and rage their identity, because aside from the super dark, murderous kinds of stuff, there's no it's very there's no swearing. It's never overtly sexual. Like, I think that to a kid with a dark side, it's extreme. I think it's pretty accessible. Yeah, it's like Edward Gorey or yeah. like Far Side cartoons. You know, they they could be pretty demented, uh, <laughs> but uh, you gravitate towards that stuff and you wear it like a badge of pride. You read it like a like yeah. with, with pride. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think that when people um, really ask about our storytelling journey and you know referencing um, our work, 
when we first got started in 2008, um, you know, that's, that's where like, maybe we wrote one comic with a swear word in it. And then we both looked at each other and was like, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> or, um, I, you know, sometime I, I might've written a joke or two that was overtly sexual. And, and then it, afterwards it'd be like, this doesn't feel right. So I think that for us, you know, on this 10 year journey, it's been so interesting to look back and, and find the jokes that we've written or the stories that we've told and, and just find that you know, that's niche group where, you know, this is where we want to be. And and the way you explained it exactly, you know, it's like, we want an 11 year old kid to pick this book up and to enjoy it just as much as somebody who's like in their twenties. I think there are different jokes in the book that appeal to all the different age ranges. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, uh, uh, when I pick up reap what you sow, like the tragedy and the, uh, and, and the terror of that ending is probably um, more painful for me as an adult than if a kid read that story and just uh, took it at face value. So not only yeah. has your storytelling evolved, but your aesthetic has evolved a lot since the beginning of Cuddles and Rage. And you've gone from doing mostly hand-drawn comics to now all of your um, Sweet Competition and Bites of Terror are dioramas. And what moved you towards that style of storytelling, particularly for a comic? Yeah, we when we first started with Cuddles and Rage, we did the hand-drawn stuff, like you were saying, and it was kind of our entry point to just get something out there into the world. We were both looking for an outlet, and that was something we could collaborate on and start producing. And not long after we did that, a friend of ours was working with polymer clay, and it was kind of intriguing because they were making food, and we're like, oh, hey, we're drawing food. What if we tried to bring these to life? And I think the practical effects world of, of films and stop motion work and those kind of things are always something I've been drawn to. And I know you have too, Liz. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity to kind of bring this off the page and make it real in front of us, um, just was something we definitely wanted to try. And it's a time consuming process. So, you know, you can be much faster at putting work out when you're drawing them, or we, at least we can, um, for the kind of work that we do. But, um, Telling stories, that's been the thing that people have gravitated to most with us, I think, is just kind of seeing that real-life thing mm -hmm. uh, that, that feels so tactile. Yeah, and I think we've gotten addicted to the challenge of making the stuff come to life, too. Um, you know, with every story, in particular in Bites of Terror, um, there, were, there was definitely, like, a prop or a set where we had to try something new that we've never attempted before, uh, which I think... Now, post-book, um, it's really upped our skill set. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I'm, uh, I have Reap What You Sow opened up in front of me right now. And it's not just the art of um, the diorama and sculpture. It's the art of lighting. You know, when it goes full giallo in that book, in that story, it's really impressive. But that's a hell of a thing to have to capture. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because um, especially when working with um, various, especially bright colors with our um, palette that we lean towards. Uh, it is hard sometimes to to make sure a certain color is not running hot, especially greens. <laughs> Green, greens can be kind of evil sometimes. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you noticing that because we did try and pull in the, the bright colors of horror because, you know, for me, I, I feel like in the 90s, we saw a lot of like, dark 
horror that just didn't have any color in it. Mm. And, you know, for us, we wanted to bring back the fun of horror and the beauty of, of color that Giallo brought to the genre. Uh, but at the same time, when you're writing these stories down, when you're first mapping out these uh, tales, it's all very easy to write. Um, you know, it has its own challenges. Right. But you get the idea, you put it out on the page. And now and you then, have to create it. And yeah. now you have to bring it, you know, to four. You have to make it in space. You have to manifest it. Yeah. Right? Uh, so yeah. when that process starts, the actual making uh, of the sets and the characters uh, are there regrets and uh, changes to the script based on like, oh my God, what have we done to ourselves? <laughs> I think that I definitely put Liz through some stuff because she's the primary sculptor. And so when I would write a story like, um, oh, what would you say was the one? Oh that my God, every story. <laughs> I feel like I always, I tell people that we've spoken with on this journey. I'm like, if the sets look complicated, that was Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> So Don't Cry, for example, that kind of goes from an apartment scene into kind of a weird, crazy outdoor situation. Right, um, right. Yeah, writing that story and trying to come up with something interesting to take the characters through, I was trying to focus on that. And something that Liz and I came up with pretty early on in putting this book together because of the amount of things we had to make. I mean, telling all these different stories together, we had to kind of be organized at how we went across this. Um, we definitely went through a storyboarding pass as a first edit pass on each of these stories just to try to get a feel for what are we setting ourselves up for. Yeah, and I think specifically in Don't Cry, um, each time Jimmy changed a setting, I would be like, do we really need to like change location? Because <laughs> that's, that's a whole lot of work. Or, or like with Unfortunate Cookie, I was like, how many cookies do you want in this story, really? <laughs> like, I feel bad because I'm, you know, not like I want to scale back, but you have a, a deadline and, you're, you know, so every time you add another layer, you have to try and do that within the same amount of time um, that you've started off with. And I think um, what's really cool about this whole entire book that, that kind of changed our working process together is that, um, yeah, throughout our career, I've been the main sculptor, but because we were stretching ourselves so far and wanting to try new things, like Jimmy, especially with Unfortunate Cookie, like he hopped on board and he would get like the base of the cookie going and then I would finish it off. And I think it made us reevaluate how we could work together more efficiently. Oh, that's cool. How long did you have to put this book together once uh, your proposal had been picked up? Okay, well, <laughs> funny story. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> well, um, I thought it would take us six months, um, which is kind of typical for a graphic novel and what publishers want to hear. And so um, we were like, oh, yeah, we can do this in six months, even though... Um, you know, the books prior to this, this book is 144 pages, which with like six to eight images per page. And the books before that, that we've done is a, would be picture book world, which is for us, um, they were actually 40 pages, um, with one image per page. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyways, in other words, like an extreme leap. Um, but we're like, oh, sure. We'll just keep the sets really simple, Jimmy. And <laughs> We'll keep their sets really simple, we'll keep the story simple, and then we'll be able to do it in six months. That didn't happen um, because we wanted to get the stories right. Uh, if you have, like, a beautiful-looking book, but the stories are crap, then, you know, sometimes it feels like, what's the point of making it? So we wanted to get the stories right, and we wanted to push ourselves, and that actually um, 
from start to finish, like a little bit before the proposal, it actually took us a whole year to make. I remember you working right up to the wire, uh, going into Fantastic Fest. And like, yes. it was like, yes. is Liz going to make it to Fantastic Fest? <laughs> oh, I was still working on Fantastic Fest. Like, I told our editor, I was like, look, even though I'm gone, like, I'm still available. Yeah. <laughs> I was prepared to miss all the films just to make sure I was there for our publisher um, because they were so gracious with us in terms of time. Uh, I, I do want to get back to talking about the inspirations, you know, you see Tales from the Crypt, you go like, oh, man, Tales from the Crypt plus us equals genius. We got to make that happen. Uh, and then you have to start crafting these, you know, 13 little horror tales. Um, how how did you determine what styles uh, to pursue, what types of tropes, what types of stories uh, to uh, tackle for Brights of Terror? That's something we were trying to be very careful about, actually, was not not repeating or not using the same ideas uh, multiple times in the book. So we drafted a few different concepts is kind of how this all started. And we worked together to pitch those out um, to get the book going. And from there, we tried to make sure we were giving each one a unique angle or a unique voice. And we definitely were pulling from influences. Like we watch a movie a day, just about a lot of it's horror. Um, you know, we wanted to honor some of the tropes that we see and not kind of go down the, the normal path so much. Um, but also to try to twist that into a food world and give our characters a unique voice, a human voice um, with their own unique personalities. So it, the, the drafting process was kind of this this idea of putting the thoughts down about what these stories could be and then looking at them collectively um, to kind of understand the whole scope of what we were putting together. And then how yeah. was the formatting process, like putting it together into a menu and that whole thing? Um, I think... Uh, for that section, I think Jimmy worked really closely with our, our editor, Rick, um, and they were able to kind of see where the flow would kind of work with like the appetizers and the entrees and the desserts, because let's be honest, like if it was just me, it would all be desserts. <laughs> like, 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 I don't know why, but I gravitate towards desserts for everything. Uh, but I, I think that kind of natural flow, like how you would read a menu, which is, um, how our, um, oh my gosh, what are, what is that? Table um, of contents. Table of contents. Thank you. Um, that's how our table of contents reads, which is like a menu. I think it gave it this kind of leaned into the food concept even more and it gave it another dimension that we weren't thinking about in the beginning necessarily. And I feel like it gave it another set of pacing, like as you're reading through the book and you're feeling each of these stories pass, like having it also broken into bigger chunks, like was really satisfying to read. Yeah, I think for me as a reader, um, I read before bed a lot of times, and sometimes I'll only make it through a page or two, and I'll be like, I read before bed, check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or sometimes I'll, I'll stay up all night, and I really, truly appreciate when it comes to graphic novels if um, there is a good stopping point for me, uh, because it means I can go to bed, you know, instead of having to read 20 more pages to finish a story. Yeah. Like vignettes or like compilations of things. I've always loved those. Brad, you mentioned Farsight earlier. So just these little snippets of stories. I just love that being able to consume lots and lots of stories because they're all so small or even like sketch comedy shows like the state or kids in the hall or, or like even movies like Tampopo that had just these vignettes that happened in them. I'm always drawn to those. So 
it was fun to kind of tackle this that way. Carrying all these stories together, the through line, you know, your crypt keeper uh, is the cake creeper. Uh, <laughs> and he's really my favorite thing about the entire book. Just aesthetically. Just as, like, well, he's aesthetically. Just amazing. But, but yeah, and concept wise, yeah. right? Um, and, and and he's the whole book hangs on him. Uh, design-wise and story-wise. How long did it take you to get to the Cake Creeper? And how long did you take to perfect that character? Well, I think the name came to us pretty quickly because um, it was just kind of, you know, taking the Crypt Keeper and how can you have fun with that in the food world? But when it came down to the design, um, Jimmy and I went back and forth on the character multiple times because you know, your host of your horror anthology is like your piece de resistance. Like that has to be somebody who um, can carry your story on for as long as it can go. So that wasn't a design that we took lightly. And so we, we went back and forth on that a few times and um, really wanted to make him uh, creepy and like something that you might not want to eat, but then you kind of want to eat. Like, <laughs> like I would take a bite out of him to see, yeah. to see what he tastes like. I, he's not too gross, but <laughs> he, he's still not a not a cake that you would order for your wedding. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, you know, this is a tremendous compliment, but I think there's a lot of characters in your book that I take a nibble out of. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> in fact, uh, after reading Deviled Egg, I had Deviled Egg. He did, he did. He's highly suggestible. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about uh, the comic book aspect uh, of the of the whole concept, because uh, it is very much a graphic novel. Um, you know, it is sequential art, and that is uh, not new to Cuddles and Rage by any means. Um, but to this extent, it sort of feels like something grander than what you've accomplished before. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that taking our germs of ideas and making sure that they weren't just a one panel comic, uh, you know, that took a lot of work because, you know, an idea could be funny in one sentence. But it, it's if you don't really have a story arc there, then there's no point in telling the story. We also have video backgrounds like we both worked in video and film and we storyboard a lot when we make video work for ourselves. So, um you know, that's something we tried to apply to this process, too, kind of treating them like as if we were to animate this, what moves would we make? What shots would we want to show and kind of direct this? Uh, Liz just stepped out to go see what's up. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's cool. That's cool. How are you organizing this the the panels like um do you do thumbnails beforehand? Do you, you know, like, or, or do you do you do a complete breakdown? Do you do layouts? Like, what what is that? Or you could like? even do do multiple takes because, like, your characters are like tactile, so you can go in and you can like move them around and go like, oh, does this take look better? Does that take look better? Yeah, definitely. It's kind of a combination of those things. So because we were trying to plan the timing so much, uh, because we had so much volume of work to, to sculpt and shoot and edit, um, it was really important to us to use that storyboarding path to give ourselves a solid guide. And we tried to stick to that process uh, as much as we could. So, um, you know, for us, it was important to try to get that shot list and then just go get all those shots as quickly as we could. 
Um, the characters are movable, and we were able to get some different shots, but a lot of kind of the behind the scenes of it is propping things up and making sure that they're just in the right position for the camera. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of fine-tuning and careful manipulation that we're going through to make sure they stay just where they are when we take the shot. Lots of tweezers. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> pins and tweezers. Um, so we, we did take multiple shots and angles, um, but mostly we tried to kind of get that uh, vetted out in the storyboarding process, and that went through multiple passes, not just from which shots to get, um, but also we would go through a detail pass where we would talk about what kind of accessories or background items or what, you know, how do these characters live and what do we need to make to put in the scene with them. You've already talked a little bit about how Liz is like the main sculptor. Um, so I'm interested in, since you guys do work as a pair, what are the, what is the most collaborative task that you do? And what are some of the things you delegate these are Jimmy's things that he does. These are Liz's things that she does. Um, I think the most collaborative process would be picking the stories. Um, with this book in particular, just because of the workload and the timeline, uh, Jimmy took five of the stories and I took five of the stories. He would, We would write our own respective stories and then we'd swap them and edit them. Um, so that was a pretty like hands-on process for both of us. And I think that uh, when we got to the point where we the stories were written and we had to go into production, then the tasks were kind of divided at that point where Jimmy, if you see like a lot of these like little meta jokes or Easter eggs throughout the book, like that's mostly Jimmy. Um, and then I'm mostly making the sets at that point. So Jimmy's going through with a fine tooth comb and, and adding in extra details and I'm focusing on the big picture. Yeah, and it's like taking that storyboard and then that detail pass of how do we fill in the world of these characters, then that would turn into a list of stuff to go make because we, we made or found or bought almost everything that's in the book. So um, that would turn into a giant to-do list that's on a spreadsheet and we'd go through and put names on tasks and yeah. go down. And I would say with the, the Cake Creeper, um, because he does have a storyline throughout and we, we wanted that to be as rich as the stories as we were telling. Um, that was all Jimmy. Like, I, I've i made it, we have, like, the only thing I really contributed to the K-Creeper is, like, here's a name, <laughs> the K-Creeper, <laughs> and maybe some of the design bits, but the story, um, that was really Jimmy. And I feel like that's, that's a voice that he was born to write, um, because, like... <laughs> Not to belittle myself, but I'm like, the cake creeper uses some big words. <laughs> I, I, I like to use the words that I use in my daily vocabulary. So <laughs> Jimmy was good at making him sound fancy. What is the key to um, maintaining a relationship and uh, producing a comic? Ooh, cliffhanger. I bet you're dying to find out, but you won't find out until Tuesday. CBCC podcast, comic book couples counseling podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. That's go right. find us, go subscribe, send us some love, leave us some reviews over there. We could use it. But first, leave reviews over here too. Yes, so yes, yes, yes. Naturally, naturally, naturally. Uh, Five stars. I really enjoyed that conversation. That part right there is really like the nitty gritty of the construction of Bites of Terror. Next week, what you're going to hear is a little bit more of well, as you, as you saw by the, my cliffhanger question, a little bit more of the relationship stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It didn't get as mushy as I wanted to. No, it did not. You wanted to get down to the kissing and the bedroom talk. Right. And but but um, I'm a prude. 
I felt like uh, Liz was definitely willing to go there. Yeah. Jimmy, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Liz was ready to go there. Uh, I was not either. Um, <laughs> so there you have it. Next week on this podcast, we are finally, finally, and I know I've been saying this, but I promise we are launching our Sundance interviews. Oh, my goodness. Jim Rash, Nat Faxon. I've been talking about this interview for weeks but it is finally upon us. We're talking about the film Downhill. Which we really enjoyed. We really enjoyed. It is not just a force majeure remake. There, we said it. And we also have an Eliza Hitman interview coming up. Oh, She's talking so about good. her film Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Uh, and Billy, he's got a conversation all the way from L.A. Ooh. with uh, Memory, the Origins of Alien director, uh, Alexander O'Philippe. And... Uh, I can't wait for that because that guy kicked off this entire podcast in our very first episode. Oh my goodness, is something coming full circle? Something's coming full circle. But again, Comic Book Couples Counseling, jump on over there. Go listen to the rest of this interview. You're not going to want to miss it. And order your copies of Bites of Terror right now. You don't even have to wait until Tuesday. They have this amazing thing called pre-order. Click it. Click it or tick it. So, Lisa, yes. where can our listeners find you online? I can always be found accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally, rarely, Letterboxed. And you can follow Liz and Jimmy at Cuddles and Rage on Twitter. But guess what? They're also on TikTok. And Liz, for like the last week, has been killing it on TikTok. And she is begging Lisa and I to get on that platform. And I'm a little nervous. I don't know. I can't dance. You can't dance? That's what I think all the young people I was do. thinking, like, could we do some kind of stop motion animation thing with our action figures? Wow, that's really, I mean, <laughs> that's really uh, ambitious. Yeah, and I, we're going to have a lot of time on our hands, I think. We should probably look at TikTok first and yeah. figure out what it's about. I don't know. I'm saying we're going to get on it, Lisa. We're going to get on TikTok. Sure. But we're not there yet. TikTok. Uh, oh, no. Oh, Kesha. 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 Follow our other dorks. Brian Young at the Turtle Dork. At the Turtle Dork 1 on Instagram. Darren Smith at the Disco Dork. He's sometimes on Twitter. He's sometimes on Instagram. Uh, but I don't see him a lot these days. So uh, send him some pokes and get him <laughs> back on the social medias. Billy Das is the Indie Dork. And he's at WB Das on all social medias. And I am Brad Gullickson at Mouth Dork on all social medias. And until next time, guys, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 